0: What's going on everybody? Welcome to the show. Today I'm chatting with fellow online coach, content creator, personal trainer, podcaster, all around super knowledgeable guy, Danny Betranga. How you doing, dude? Good, man. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. Just to kick us off, because I know we have a couple uh, rabbit holes we want to go down, what can you tell my listeners just to help them get to know you a bit more if they don't already and just like how you got into the space and what you're all about?
1: Yeah, no, so I I much like many of us got into this space as a former athlete who wanted to enhance their performance and and, and kind of take what limited physical gifts I had to the highest level in high school <laughs> athletics. So I became yeah. quickly acclimated with the weight room as a short, moderately athletic white dude. I did everything that I could to to try to play my, you know, sports at the highest level and very quickly found out that there is a very short runway for me in the uh athletic space and so you know i enjoyed the attention i was getting at the time from from girls about the changes that i was seeing in my body uh at a young age and you know my late teens and so i i quickly became obsessed with the various facets and avenues of sports performance uh hypertrophy strength training specifically nutrition was something that i was really passionate about i remember being very young and just so awe-inspired by just how many avenues of our physiology are truly impacted by the foods we eat. And so from a very early age, I've, I've had this passion and desire to learn about this stuff. I had almost no academic aspirations whatsoever. So when I found out you could go to school for kinesiology, I was like, well, that makes sense. So, you know, let's try that. And I needed to pay my way through school. so. I rushed through a, a NASM certification and I got hired at a box gym and I was going to school uh, in the afternoons and ha- and working split shifts early mornings and late evenings at a at a box gym for four years. I built up a clientele. Uh, when I graduated, I took that clientele into an independent training space, started making content, and you know after several years of doing that, I found myself with. Uh, a little bit of a following, was able to get into some online coaching and create some content on on various platforms and in a way that I think helps people. So that's kind of the story of how I got into it. It's not super unique. It's similar to many people's stories,
0: but uh, it's always worth sharing. Yeah, for sure. I think there's something to be said about some of the best coaches were built out of having like not not the best genetics and having to really work for it. And if I had mm-hmm. to pick, if I had to pick like the top ten, you know, the, the, the out of a list of the top ten people, and like which one do I think would be a best coach? Sometimes it's like that guy with the best genetics just isn't gonna have the, an appreciation for making somebody suck less, you know, by, by getting better and really looking for the minutia on how to make people improve. Um, so I definitely agree with that. Definitely born out of something very similar. I was like decent at stuff and was like, Hey, how how do I get much better? And then realized that like, I wasn't really going to get much better, but I can make other people better. So definitely similar thing. Like you said, not a super unique story, but, um, for a good reason, you know, I mean, that's how coaches, good coaches are born for sure.
1: Yeah, we see it in the sporting world all the time with baseball, football, basketball, where oftentimes the best players don't make the best coaches or managers, but sometimes it's players who had a uh, meaningful but mediocre career, but who really, to be successful, had to understand, like you said, the minutiae, the finer details. And that's that's certainly something that I think is true of myself. You know, I was never going to break powerlifting records. I've got a relatively compact frame so I can build some muscle but I'm I, w- I wasn't going to be Mr Olympia and you know in the pursuit of optimizing my own fitness endeavor I found like hey I can really help other people by you know learning from my own struggle and and i think that you're spot on with the fact that when you have that genetic gift which isn't any knock on people with genetics because there are certainly people with excellent genetics who are, are students of the game if you will um there just is less of a need to dive down those rabbit holes to really climb into the academic space and so that's in many ways been a blessing for me
0: for sure for sure and um diving into the first kind of thing I want to talk about with you today. A lot of times when I'm having somebody on, like I always, I reached out to you beforehand and I was like, hey, what's something that you're super passionate about right now or that's going on with your clients or you feel like you're talking a lot about in your content? And 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 most people are super nice. They're like, hey, dude, whatever you want to talk about, like I'm ready to go. But like I always mm-hmm. want to find something that I know that the, the, the other person, my guest can sink their teeth into. So I'll just go and I'll just binge a whole bunch of their content and I'll wait for them to like really go in on something. I'm like, yep, we're talking about this. So for yeah. you, it was... It was that episode where you were talking about nutritional tribalism and just tribalism in general in the health and fitness space and so that's absolutely what i want to talk about today and i don't even want to start i want to let you define it and then i'm going to kind of poke around so what what is nutritional tribalism
1: yeah so i think before we even attach the the preface of nutritional tribalism we just have to look at the human condition and our desire to be somewhat tribalistic at our most fundamental level so you know, depending on what you subscribe to, we know that the human species is about 200,000 years old. We've got Homo sapien that ranges back further than that, but what we look at and say, hey, that thing kind of looks like me. We've got about 200,000 years we can look back at. And one of the most consistent behaviors across that entire time is the need to and desire to be part of something bigger than yourself. Religion was born from this. Politics was born from this. All of our great societies were born from this. So when we hear the term tribalism in the context of nutrition, we do look at it as like, hey, Eh, It's kind of a negative, and we'll get to that in a second. But the desire to be tribalistic in nature for 200,000 years has been a relatively good thing. Um, But more recently, and you don't need to look much further than what's going on in the world right now. I'm not going to dive down the political rabbit hole uh, just for the sake of everybody's sanity and giving them a break from it. But tribalism does have a tendency to go a little bit Far or go from guardrail to guardrail and get hyperpolarized very very quickly. And because we have 200,000 years of evolution that rewards us for picking a side and having the inclination to try to get into a camp. So you know, hey, nobody wants to be the odd man out. Strength and numbers. Um, we've seen that tribalism has become increasingly popular and effectively every facet of the human condition. That unfortunately finally getting to nutrition, I think we've ended up in a space now where because most people's introduction to nutrition is through the vehicle of diets, not through nutritional science. The majority of people's understanding and knowledge around nutrition comes from the diet space, not from the actual nutritional science space. What we end up with is whatever diet you cling to or whatever diet has worked for you or whatever documentary you watched or whatever influencer you follow if any of that stuff resonates with you very quickly people start to form pretty concrete ideologies around food and they start to align themselves into a space that we would probably you know say hey that's looking very tribal and the way in which people go about defending these things is pseudo-political. It's pseudo-religious, um, to the point where we've got people, and this is no no knock on vegans, but you know, people who follow that vegan diet aren't just proponents of plant-based eating. They actively and vehemently seek out non-plant-based eaters and verbally abuse them on on social media calling them things like murderers calling them you know people who do not you know saying you don't care about the planet they make these broad arguments and these broad attacks against large amounts of people and when you look at something like that you go hold on hold on hold on that's not really about nutrition is it that's about ideology and that is the darkest perhaps corner of the nutritional tribalism space where we're attacking people and, and who they are as, as a human being, not what they choose to eat. Uh, but, you know, then you have that kind of more middle of the road bickering between, you know, well I think lower carbs better. Well I think higher carbs better. So there's of course a spectrum, but you know, to just wrap it up and circle the wagons, it does have a tendency to get a little bit nasty uh, when you get towards that more perhaps polarized end of the spectrum.
0: I think that there's – if you look, go look in the comments section of some of the topics that you are discussing, maybe it's somebody who has a vegan profile or something like that, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that in a second. I think you can very easily spot the kind of d- comment or, or, or verbiage that is indicative of somebody who's not actually arguing or discussing to convince and to get closer to the truth and to get closer <laughs> to a you know benefiting everybody, and – you can see very quickly the difference between that and somebody who's arguing or discussing to win or attack. like if you are one of those people who does subscribe to a vegan diet and does believe in you know, the environmental and the moral uh, uh, ethical factors that go into that. like and you want other people to subscribe to that and you truly truly wholeheartedly believe in those things. And then you read some of these comments, you're like, well, this is not the way to bring people to your side. This is not somebody who's arguing or discussing to convince. They're arguing or discussing to win or attack. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's where we we kind of the, the average person who's on the other end of that discussion or even just somebody who's third party viewing it, like that's where they lose because they're not, you know, the whole point of a discussion or a quote unquote argument should be about both people getting closer to the truth. And that's just not mm-hmm. what we're seeing. We're not seeing those civilized arguments. We're seeing it, like you said, where people are defending a, a position. Or Defending their position or their their group of people and not actually the logic in front of them. They're not defending certain science. They're just, no matter what, going to defend their position, regardless of new information, not being open-minded. And they're not actually in this discussion to come to a greater truth. They're arguing to win or to attack.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's again, it's the proselytization of like, hey, I am holier than thou, I am better than you, look at the decisions that I make, you, you not making these decisions makes you inferior. Uh, and, you know, this type of language, to your point, this, the utilization of this type of verbiage historically has never been an effective way to help anybody change their mind, change their opinion, or come to a more common ground in anything, especially something like nutrition. And when we talk about the fact that, hey, we've got a population where over 40%, at least here in America, are obese, 60% are overweight, I am of the school of thought that those numbers are gonna be exponentially higher when we get the next, uh, the next, I guess you would call it, overview from the CDC uh, post-COVID because of all of the sedentary activity, food delivery, all that stuff. I think that stuff's only going up. And if you're one of those people, which the majority of this country is, and you're looking for help, and you're looking for assistance, and you're looking for some degree of nutrition education, and you end up stumbling upon this stuff, because this has become a greater percentage of the nutritional dialogue than it ever should have been, it's very defeating. And it's just like, yo, man, like, I don't even know. I I I looked at, I Googled weight loss and I, I found like fifteen things and all those people were yelling at each other and, and ripping on each other. It's not a good place when we look at just how many people truly need help with nutrition to allow for this much ideological debate and very little constructive to your point. Hopefully, dialogue that elevates the platform that nutrition has so as many people as possible can access it. That's the big kind of poo-poo on nutritional tribalism. I'm all for defending things that you believe to be true, but can we do it in a way, can we discuss it in a way where we don't attack each other, where we make nutrition more inviting instead of making it the way it is now, which is highly combative and, and less inviting?
0: yep it's certainly the person who knows the least that loses. It's certainly the vast majority of people who have been introduced to nutrition through diet culture that are the losers of the situation, the people that are mm-hmm. aren't able or willing to critically think their way through some of these things and and look at and and they don't really know what to look for. and that's something that i w- I would like to discuss. It's like let's let like, how does this play out normally for the average person and and what are some of the things? Where people are getting their information like what are some things to look out for ways of critically thinking ways of becoming a bit more of a of a skeptic um what are some of the the strategies that somebody the average person can do when they're looking at content to kind of mm-hmm. kind of shit test some of the stuff they're hearing and and you know grow as a critical thinker what are some of the things that they can look out for
1: yeah no i think it's actually a really good question i think that first and foremost you just have to have a lens that's slightly skeptical and you're inclined to be critical. And if you are one of those people or that you're aware enough, at least as you dive into the nutrition space, that skepticism is important, as is the case with all science, as is the case with all politics, as is the case with effectively anything, a pinch of skepticism can be your best friend. But if you come across a post on Instagram, let's just say it's Instagram, and it's a impassioned appeal to plant-based dieting, And then you click on the profile of that individual and their name is Vegan Tom. And the Instagram bio says, you know, plant based since birth, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't mean that this person is spouting information that's incorrect, but that should be some, that should provide some degree of red light that says, hey, this person in all likelihood has a bias. So the first thing you should be aware of is, hey, is there a bias here? And if there is a bias here, how much do I need to read into it? And if you're aware of it, it should become pretty obvious pretty quickly. Another thing you might want to be cautious of when you're surveying the nutritional landscape, looking for education or looking to improve your nutritional acumen is, hey, is this information tied to a product or service? If it is, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, Right, But a lot of people are introduced to nutritional information through things like diet books. And so maybe you go, oh, I, I found this diet book. And I go, okay, well, who wrote that diet book? Oh, it was written by a doctor. Well, what type of doctor wrote that diet book? Uh, oh, it was a chiropractor. Okay, well, that's fine. Not all chiropractors are bad people, but not all chiropractors are nutritional experts. Many of them are just looking to supplement their practice by having some subsidiary income come from a diet book. And so that pinch of skepticism should always be applied to the source. The other thing too is fundamentally, if you look at nutrition globally, it's much more balanced pretty much everywhere else than it is here in America. Here in America, we just have this strange affinity to extremism and polarity but if you look culturally across the world like places like where we see blue zones where people tend to live quite a bit longer they eat a very different diet than people in Japan who also live very long and so you can look at that and go wow we've got these blue zones all over the planet. And then we've got specific pockets culturally, like I said, places like Japan, much of Asia, where we see these people eating very different diets, but they have very good health markers and they tend to live quite a long time. What are they doing similarly? Not a whole lot. And that's not a bad thing. The, the fact of the matter is, when you have the critical examination of, I guess you would call it geonutrition or globalized nutrition, you see that there is a space for a lot of variability. There's a push and pull you have some flexibility and you can still have a long healthful life simply by just making good food decisions inside that greater perhaps landscape of nutrition it doesn't have to be all one way and that's one of the things at least here in America we love to defend the ideology that it's gotta be one way when in fact it's not about finding the best way. It's about finding ways to make the best practices and better decisions over the long haul.
0: I have some notes in front of me that I'd written before this. And I literally wrote down like blue zones have nothing to do with macro splits. And you have the Okinawa Japanese who are eating like 80% potato. And then you have the Inuits who are eating like, you know, 90% fat and protein, 95% fat and protein. Haven't seen fucking vegetable in a decade, in, in a century. Like, and Yes, I think if you look at the Blue Zones as a whole, you come to the conclusion that a lot of them are, you know, more plant-centric for sure. But the fact that it, like, that, that's just a regionally an impossibility for the for the <laughs> Inuits and the fact that it's just straight-up possible. For those of you guys that aren't familiar, like Inuits, like, eat mostly, like, uh, fish and animal product, uh, like whale blubber, like, and then you have the Okinawa in Japan who eat, you know, mostly or historically, yeah, mostly carbohydrate, uh, very little protein and fat, and you have, see both of these, camps of people thriving and and living, you know, the the highest percentage of centenarians across the world, like living really, really healthy lives. And we, you know, we have to look at these differences culturally in terms of like macro split, but also um, just like generally in food, food types and food eating patterns and think like, that's just not where the answer is. And if, you know, we can go into a little bit deeper into the similarities of the blue zones, but a lot of what they're doing are things that we should really be focused on. And it does leave a lot of clues as to like where we should be putting our mental and emotional efforts as content creators, but also as the baseline skeptic, like we talked about as the consumer who's thinking, Hey man, if someone's out there saying this is the macro split for me, like that's just not scientifically what we see as the most important factor when it comes to health. Um, yeah. I I also think like there's <laughs> th- 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 just, why nutrition? Like, why is nutrition something that gets so polarized, so tribalized? And I always think that it's another reason why, you know, calorie deficit and body composition change can sometimes be hard. It's because we we all eat and we all still have to eat. Um, And we all have such an intimate relationship with our food and we have an intimate relationship with, with some of the diet, quote unquote diets that we've done and our personal, you know, body changes and how we feel with food and our cultural relationship to food. It's not something like we're not as, Uh, uh, you know tribal about you know basketball or you know interior decorating like we are Mm -hmm. about politics because guess what we all live in this nation together and we are about nutrition because guess what we all eat Um, Mm -hmm. and it it just lends itself to this polarity because we all have to do it there's no you can't ostracize yourself from the conversation because you have to eat at some point so you have to make these choices so we're so ripe for having those choices be manipulated by what we see.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's very true, which is that because we all eat, we all are in theory involved in the nutrition dialogue, which in many ways is somewhat unfortunate. It's in the same way that, to your point, I don't understand perhaps at the deepest level why we're so compulsive about it with nutrition i mean hey we all drive but we don't all believe ourselves to be race car drivers but we all eat and very quickly we believe we've become nutritional authorities within you know a very limited time of, of studying this stuff and what's true of all sciences is that there's still a large degree of unknown but we speak about nutritional science or I shouldn't even say that. I should say diet culture was such a high degree of definitive uh, just kind of group talk that we, we believe, well, there are large groups of people that believe they've genuinely found the answer. But to your point about the blue zones, if that's taught us anything, it's that there's multiple correct answers that depend on lifestyle, that depend on accessibility, that depend on the region from which you're from, the genetics variability from person to person that should, in theory... Uh, bring light to the fact that there are multiple correct answers to this and that instead of trying to find what's optimal for you know large groups of people, we should be giving people the tools to find what's hopefully optimal for themselves. But again, I think if I had to take a guess why we are so drawn to this, I actually read an article not that long ago about why people are so pulled to woke culture there's just a desire to be a part of something there's a desire to you know have answers for things and i think that nutrition is a very accessible thing and it gives us the ability to go well i I, i've really become an expert on this and i'm very passionate about it um and people very quickly form an identity around their nutritional ideology that becomes borderline religious for some people and it's a sanctitious thing that it's like don't You know, like I I don't mess with my nutritional ideology like I am a hardcore vegan like I'm hardcore. It's like, man, I, I get it. But why do we feel the need to become hardcore about nutrition? I think it's because, quite frankly, people just feel the desire to belong and they've turned nutrition into this new thing that it really should have never become in the first place because it's a science for Christ's sake. There's so much nuance, there's there's so much opportunity to develop and continue to grow our understanding of it that entrenching yourself in this like pseudo religious belief totally stops the evolution of the greater nutritional narrative. So it's a frustration. It's a rabbit hole we could go down forever, really. But I think as long as we understand that people have this strange tendency to do that, that tribalistic nature, we've got to be very careful as content creators with how we go about, you know, promoting nutritional education.
0: Yeah, you you said strange tendency, but I think we would both agree that it's that it's actually makes total sense. It's, It's our default setting. It's our yeah, it's our baseline go to we. I don't know if you've read the book sapiens, but, but there's just so yeah. much talk about how, how homo sapiens ability to, to work together and communicate and tribalize was the reason that we became the the forefront of the evolutionary process. But that, I, I want, I'm going to say something slightly controversial, not j- just so that we can pick it apart. It's because yeah. we, we, when, whenever you and I, we very much agree on this, this issue that, tra- you know, tribalism in terms of nutrition doesn't help the average person. It's sending us down the wrong path, but like, I don't actually think there's any other way there was any other way for us to go. And I, while I would agree that the rest of the world might um might be slightly less tribalistic, slightly more, you know, or less hyperbolic, less definitive in in their language, but it does seem that if, if tribalism was our baseline nature, that that this is kind of to some degree how it was always gonna go. We were always gonna start with tribalism and have to unpack it and have to break it mm-hmm. apart. And part of me when I was thinking about what we were gonna talk about today, I was like, is are there some good things? Are there some things that help people? Are there? Okay, and the truth is, yes, there are some people that have helped. There are some people that have benefited from, you know, I think of group fitness class. I think group fitness class is like, um, you know, the the best thing about group fitness is not the workout itself. It's the fact that there are people there that wouldn't have engaged in those activities had there not been this group community activity. Mm-hmm. And, and there are also people out there that changed their life going keto and vegan and carnivore and, It's, you know, if you ask them, they might not even know, or Weight Watchers is very similar. We have this huge community component where they succeeded because of that tribalism. Now, I think for every one of those people, there's 10 people who didn't succeed and are now worse off than where they were and more confused. And I totally agree. But what is tribalism? The necessary evil for us to get to a better place.
1: It's highly possible, and I love the point that you brought up about the fact that we oftentimes point at these things and go, well, that's a very definitively kind of concrete way to look at things, and I don't know if I would do that. Well, I also have a high degree of nutritional acumen, but for somebody who's brand new and was eating the traditional Western diet, I would say that a well-planned vegan diet is probably better. I would say that a well-planned ketogenic diet is probably better. I don't know if i go so far as to say that a carnivore diet is better, but I could certainly see the merit. And, you know, if tribalism is the gateway to potentially understanding things better down the road, I think that that's potentially awesome. Uh, I don't think that, you know, in 20, 30, 40 years, I want to see us as tribalistic as possible. But maybe we have a generation of people who get to a place where they've been like, hey, you know. My buddy was keto. He really got me into keto and I did keto for like a year and, and we were doing crossfit together and then I found that you know I needed a little bit more carbs to do the crossfit. and, and my body started you know taking a little wear and tear. so now I just kind of eat keto, but I, I have some carbs and I just hit, hit a workout at the gym three days a week. Hey, that's awesome. I think that's badass. Had it not been for keto and CrossFit, you might have never been here. I think one of the things that as practitioners, professionals, we really need to remember is we have some degree of privilege to be able to look at people who are engaging in this tribalistic behavior and go like, ha ha, that's really silly. You're not seeing the whole picture. But in many cases, that was us too when we first got started. And to your point about community, I think that all of these different tribalistic uh little pockets whether it's crossfit group fitness as you mentioned earlier bodybuilding powerlifting if we look at the nutritional side we've got veganism carnivore ketogenic dieting weight watchers whatever it might be they invite people in who otherwise would have had to figure this out on their own and although those you know those schools of thought are far from perfect. Although those ideologies are far from perfect. I'll take somebody who's doing CrossFit and eating vegan any day over somebody who's being sedentary and eating a traditional Western diet. Give me the ketogenic Zumba lady over the sedentary person who eats all of their food from Starbucks and McDonald's. To me, that stuff as far from perfect as it is, is way better than what most people end up doing and that's the discussion about tribalism that we don't have is are there potential positive aspects to knowing like you said people are inherently drawn to groupthink. they want to be a part of something nobody wants to be isolated if we invite people if people naturally gravitate towards this stuff will they kind of over the long term kind of start to figure out that there's stuff here that I like that I'm going to take and keep with me. And there's stuff that I don't like that I'm going to look to change. And I do think that through trial and error, many people will that way. And I think it's great. I think we do lose some people. Um, unfortunately, we do lose some people. Yeah. The less ideal ways of thinking. But overall, I think that there's some merit to tribalism and that it's not all bad
0: definitely it could be it could be a necessary evil it does it definitely does more harm than good but there are some people who i know that you if you post something that's slightly polarizing in that way that you're gonna find somebody's like oh, oh but but me in my situation it saved me and their their anecdote is valid it is but it's percent but it's just doing it's just doing more harm than good and for them it's difficult to talk somebody out of that kind of placebo effect and i think i think lane norton does a really good job of of at the very least, he's who I think of when I think of this way of thinking of no matter what, when somebody says something, you have to ask compared to what instead of what, um, you know, like you said, if I, I'll take a well-formulated vegan diet any day over a standard American diet, 100%, I'll take a keto diet over a standard, I'll take almost literally any diet in the world over the, you know, the standard yeah. American diet, the Western diet. So what you have to talk about is compared to what, and if somebody starts from a, a you know, standard American Westernized diet, a lot of processed food, um, and they go to literally anything that prioritizes whole foods, you're yeah. going to see improvements. They're going to just feel that, that, that so much better that they are so bought into that that it's going to be hard to change their mind for sure.
1: No, I, I couldn't agree more, man. And I, I think that at the end of the day, compared to what is probably the biggest bottleneck for all of this nutritional stuff. Because when you start to say compared to what – That invites discussion. And I think that that is at the crux of this what we should be doing as content creators and practitioners. I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing anything. If I've made any mistakes in my career as a professional, it's probably being too objectively anti things, Uh, anti vegan, anti keto, because again, I have the privilege to understand this stuff from years of self study. However, I don't want somebody to go, man, you know, I was trying vegan and I was feeling good. And then I read this guy's post and he he basically said it was stupid. So I'm just going to give it up instead of maybe providing some type of content that would challenge instead of the your diet is stupid, challenge the compared to what narrative and give them the opportunity to go, wow, this was healthier than how I was eating. But is it better than how I could be eating. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in our space is in an effort for practitioners, coaches, trainers to sound or want to project expertise. We feel as though we have to objectively shit on things. And I just as tr- as appealing as that is, as, you know, enjoyable as it is to, you know, dunk on people if you will, I just don't know how many people that's really ever helped. And it is a mistake that I made so much early in my career. It's one of the biggest regrets I have. It's one of the things that when I see it, it, especially from people who I respect, I just go, man, you know, I really know as somebody who's done this, this comes from a place of insecurity. It comes from a place of, if, if you feel as though you have to dunk on people and shit on people, I don't know if we're seeing the whole picture here. And it's unfortunate because some of the loudest voices are some of the hardest dunkers. And I think that if we invite instead space for discussion and build everything from that fundamental place of compared to what, we can really make some serious progress.
0: Yeah, you said when you say something like carve out some space for discussion, I, the average person doesn't have time for that. And that's like, that's mm-hmm. the issue where black and white, and, and I wanna circle back around to what we talked about for as a as somebody listening to this podcast how can you maybe be a bit more of that that default skeptic that baseline skeptic how can you what are some tools and strategies you can use i think one of the best things you can do is beware of that black and white that definitive that hyperbolic language that polarizing language you know saying never and always and good and bad and healthy and unhealthy and you know if you do this it's wrong if you do this it's right i mean if you see that i don't care what the person is talking about you know there are exceptions uh, but if you see that, that's you better throw up a bunch of red flags. And and like you said, when you see somebody dunking on something, the only thing that's worth dunking on is somebody who's using that hyperbolic language. I, I don't actually think that there's a something – I'm sure there are exceptions, but 99 out of 100 times somebody dunking on something, like – instead of dunking on that thing, we should be dunking on the, the, the group of people from that camp who are <laughs> who are raising themselves above, above everybody else morally because their diet is better and everybody else, like you said, is either killing animals or, you know, you know, shouldn't be eating carbs, your insulin is going to get insulin sensitive and get fat. Like, I think what we need to be dunking on is that definitive language so that people, like the one thing I will always call out is you know, people not using disclaimers, not saying, you know, likely or for most people or in some cases, like mm-hmm. those are the things people need to hear more often. And that as a content creator is something that as I've evolved into doing over the years of that just takes more time. It takes more time to reread your content and be like, Hey, like, am I being too definitive? And then there are going to be people out there who are, who know, because it's a 100% fact that the average person isn't going to really appreciate those disclaimers and that if you just put a bit more hyperbolic language, this thing's going to get more likes. It's going to get more views. It's going to get more clicks. And it's it's difficult in a social media world that's capitalistic in the, in the sense that it's like free reign to say whatever you want and more clicks is more money is more followers. It's hard to expect the majority of our industry to kind of trend in that direction of more balance, of more nuance, of more context. But as a coach, I know you'd agree. That is what we have to do. We have to add that context. We have to invite people to the table to have that discussion, instead of just, like you said, just dunking on, dunking on keto or dunking on vegan without, without context. Like there are people that just, they're left in an equally confused place. They're all right, keto is shit, and now what? And we need to be able to help them with. First of all, keto is not shit. In all, you know, again, this is like a hyperbolic non-contextual statement we need to be bringing people into a a discussion where they come back come away with some nuance but that's just harder and that's kind of why we don't see it i guess
1: no i agree and i I think that i'm not anti-dunking on people or camps like i think some of the more nefarious uh charlatanian that's not a real word but But you know what i'm saying people in our space like i'm going to posterize you i'm not just going to try to dunk on you i'm going to try to put you on a highlight
0: Uh because
1: if if i know And what's unfortunate is many of these people are intelligent. They know exactly what they're doing. And in the same way that you're telling me, and we're having an awesome discussion about the importance of using language to create and carve space for discussion, these people use language in a manipulative fashion. They specifically use verbiage that perhaps circumvents some of that space intentionally. They leave little room for dialogue. They cherry pick data. You know, this is this is not uncommon. Those are the people that we need to dunk on. But if we look at like perhaps the world of politics and we go, okay, how many people, and I and we're not going to go down the, the rabbit hole here, we're just going to speak broadly, how many people that were going to vote for Trump are not going to vote for Trump because of something that somebody that they know posted on Facebook dunking on him? I guarantee you very little people are going to make their change or any change based on that. What they're going to do is they're probably going to see that and they're going to become increasingly more entrenched in their belief. Because if there's anything I believe more so about people than that they like to be tribal, it's that they don't like to be made fun of, called out or shit on. And so if you're trying to change somebody's opinion, somebody's approach, the way which somebody sees things, it's almost always better to do so by meeting them in the middle than it is by trying to go hey this is dumb and let me tell you why instead say hey i understand why you believe that contextually there's certainly some truth to what you're saying have you ever thought about that compared to this you know and inviting and carving out that space that's something that with people like you and me who make content quite regularly it takes the extra effort but it's well worth it
0: it absolutely is i think that 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 recoil effect where people get, uh, they don't, they don't take, they don't get called out and then become more open-minded towards your position. It's not, again, it's not, that's not how you argue to convince. That's how you argue to win. That's how you argue Mm -hmm. to get an emotional response. And quite often that emotional response is not, Hey, I see your point. Let me, you know, let me really break that down and consider that against my point. It's like, Hey, fuck you. Like you don't talk shit about my side and I'm going to defend my part even harder. Um, I want, I want to discuss, um, Kind of break down how somebody can maybe, you know, uh, engage or or consume content about a lot of these camps, and what are some of the things that they like? We look at the blue zones. We look for similarities. You know, we look for what are they doing, what are they not doing, and we try and you know use that information to to to, to deduce some some actionable things that people can do to you know live longer, be healthy. Like, let's take some of those common camps and let's talk about how can we lead, how can we take some of the good and wh- and what are the so what are the good parts or the good pieces of thing uh, uh of that camp that are being spoken into the industry and what are some of the some of the noise some of the really loud minority that we want to help people kind of shun a little bit so we can look at like vegan keto yeah if it fits your macros clean eating and like what are some of the we can look specifically at vegan and we can kind of go through these one at a time i guess at like I'd love what are to. the good things what are the good things and what are some of the the really loud minority that we would love to kind of turn the volume down on.
1: Yeah. So I think we'll start with veganism because they tend to be the loudest. I think that the things we can garner from that nutritional approach that really make a lot of sense are the importance of fibrous, nutritious plant matter in our diet. Like if that, that nutritional ideology had one thing going for it, it's that. And I think that in almost all instances, eating more fresh Uh, Hopefully locally sourced seasonal fruits and vegetables is going to contribute to overall lower cause mortality, generally better vivacious life, and uh, stave off a plethora of issues associated with eating, quite frankly, all the other stuff. The negative stuff associated with that diet is that if any of these, in my opinion, were to be deemed a pseudo-religion, it's that— It's the desire to really dunk on people and have the moral high ground when we're learning more and more every day about how we can ethically source animal products in a better way that's better for the planet and in some ways even restorative or regenerative for the planet. Um, So again, the pros of veganism are of course, the focus on eating a high amount of plant matter. That's going to be good for almost everybody in almost every context, the cons, the obsessive compulsive desire to dunk
0: on people. The moral high ground.
1: With keto, I would say the biggest contribution the ketogenic diet has made to the general nutrition narrative is that not all fats and not all animal products are bad for you and that we need to enhance our understanding of exactly what role cholesterol and dietary cholesterol plays in our overall health and to what degree is saturated fat okay um, I think that could be a really powerful thing for us to continue to evolve the narrative there. I think the, of course, in my opinion, the most negative uh, aspect of the ketogenic diet or the the biggest negative contribution it's made is the continued demonization of carbohydrates. Um, you know, the fact that you cannot have carbohydrate in your diet and be keto and, and this – also, the semantic issue of burning fat versus fat loss. I think it's muddied the waters there, but there's still a lot of good. with If it fits your macros, without a doubt, the, the biggest take-home there is food freedom and the importance of accounting. The ability to be able to eat the foods you like in the context of caloric control and how you can have what you want and have the body you want too, that's awesome. The negative, of course, is when you eat too much crap, even if it fits your macros, you can look great, but be horribly unhealthy on the inside. Um, With fasting, I think fasting's been incredible for undoing some of the narrative around nutrient timing, kind of working back from that conventional ideology of three square meals a day, you must have breakfast, blah, blah, blah. the negatives, of course, are that you know it's very much uh, a gateway to certain disordered eating patterns, and it's definitely not for everybody. I don't know, are there are there ones that I'm missing? Because you can throw them at me, and I'll keep going.
0: No, those those are those are really great. I think I think I think a lot of it, kind of what I'm what I think about when I think of this discussion of the take the good and leave the bad is it's a lot about like what you are doing, not versus what you're not doing. And like, if you look at vegan, it's not about not eating meat. It's about eating more plant and vegetable matter, like fruit, more fruits, more vegetables, ton of micronutrients, ton of phytonutrients, uh, a lot of fibers, uh, a lot of uh, insoluble fiber, soluble fiber, insoluble fiber. Um, yes. And it's about what you are doing. It's not about what you're not doing. Keto, like you said, it does really, it did a really great job. And I, I, I did keto for an entire year straight without missing one meal maybe back in 2015 and it did give me that exact takeaway. Yeah, I floated and I flirted with this you know, carbs are bad methodology, but the more we learned, the more I worked carbohydrates back in, everything was fine, but it, it the my takeaway forever was the reduction in this of this demonization of fat and this recognition of some of the cholesterol science that is out now and and how multifaceted that health is. And this is something I want to talk about screaming from the rooftop. It's like health is so multifaceted. If you think that you will be healthy or not healthy, period, based on this binary fact of you eat meat or not, like you don't understand the amount of factors that go into being healthy all the way down to people being like, is this single ingredient healthy? And I'm like, I'm like, first of all let's say it was unhealthy are you now an unhealthy person for having had this single ingredient in a non-contextual dose i know i'm going into a little bit of a rabbit hole but like if we look at those four things keto vegan if it fits your macro clean eating fasting like if you're a if you're a healthy person you're probably controlling your calories you're probably eating enough protein you're probably getting enough micronutrients you're probably limiting processed food you're probably um Cooking most of your meals, you're you're doing some sort of planning. You're putting some effort and mental uh, mental effort towards your nutrition. Like none of those have anything to do with macro splits or what you're eating, and and that's a lot of what I hope people can take away. It's just really tough to pull people out of their their anecdote, you know. No,
1: dude, I I, I totally do, and it's it's something that I think about quite often, which is that you know, as human beings, we want to find answers. We want to be definitive in. Unfortunately, we've lost touch with how important nuance is. And I think, with regards to nutrition, nuance is something. If there was a word for today's podcast, it's nuance. Like, let's make that sexy again. Let's make it sexy to say, hey, everything in context. Let's talk about why this may or may not be true in context, or let's sprinkle a little bit of nuance into this discussion. Because I love to be definitive. I love to be precise. I love to try to be as factual and exact as possible. And nutrition allows for a lot of that. But also, we have to look at things through the lens of the individual. And there's just too much person-to-person variability, situational variability, lifestyle variability for us to ever become fully conclusive about almost anything really and if we really just again look through the lens of nuance i think we actually end up getting a lot closer to truth than if we try to look through things in the most definitive concrete objective oftentimes tribal way
0: and and a lot of what we what i'd like to do and i think a lot of the the coaches out there i'd like to help people who I think sometimes you have to go to a place of unbalance to find a place of balance. And I don't think everyone's going to I don't think everyone's going to turn 15 and start reading Lane Norton and on the bodybuilding forums and get into evidence-based nutrition. Not everyone's going to be graced with that entry into this, like you said, we most people find it through having done a diet and then it's just like a really 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 really, really like circular maze-like path to evidence-based nutrition if you ever make it there. So a lot of what you and I can do and a lot of content uh, creators and coaches is shorten that learning curve and accelerate mm-hmm. that process. And no, if you're listening out there, like Danny and I have probably both done stupid shit over our, our nutrition careers, so to speak. Like we've done it all. We've done stupid shit that we look back on and say, hey, that probably wasn't the best thing. But sometimes that it, it takes going to a place of unbalance to find balance. And if you're out there and you, you look back every couple of years, you're like, wow, I can't believe I did that. As long as you're taking steps towards towards like we talked about towards some nuance towards finding out what works best for you and you're taking each one of those experiences and taking something good from it like there's no harm in it like i don't want people listening feeling bad that they've like fallen for some of these you know predatory uh verbiages on 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 social media because we've all been there and that's okay as long as you continue to work towards finding out what's best for you and and sometimes not to not a plug but man hiring a coach that you that, that you think is looking through that lens that you'd like to, to look through, that is speaking in a way where you're like, okay, he's not, you know, some nuance, some disclaimers, some balance, some, you know, actual, you know, discussion about what might be best for the individual, like find somebody like that and hire them to help you weed through the bullshit and accelerate that process. But there's no, don't feel bad if you've messed around with things that you look back and you're like, man, that's kind of dumb, but sometimes that's what it takes.
1: I couldn't agree more. (laughs) So much of what I understand about all of this is due to mistakes that I've made and looking to remedy those mistakes or unlearning uh, things that I believe to be true was in many ways my greatest opportunity for growth. And so, again, to your point, I think that just to be, you know, be kind to yourself throughout this process. Understand that nobody arrives at the truth. You and I have yet to still arrive at the truth. We're just working our way there in what I believe to be a more nuanced way than a lot of people because of some of what we've experienced in our own career, in our own path to finding what makes uh, our, our own fitness journey, I should say. And and so to to anybody who is listening, absolutely don't, don't feel bad for trying anything. Be explorative. But again, going back to the very first thing that we brought up, sprinkle in some skepticism. Sprinkle in some nuance. Those are your two best friends in, in many cases for all of your intellectual endeavors. And, and never give up on this because if there's anything that you should make a lifelong pursuit, in my opinion, it's your health. You're never going to know all the answers. But if you never stopped trying, I think you're going to give yourself the best chance to live a long, healthy life.
0: That's awesome. I, I, I absolutely love that. Um, we're coming up close on time. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, I want to end with a question that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Yeah. In light of the name of the podcast, Where Optimal Meets Practical, what's mm-hmm. something that might be optimal on paper, generally, specifically, that you find not to be entirely practical as a coach to a significant, a, a, a non-insignificant number of people?
1: Yeah, so, God, there's so many things that come to mind, specifically given the conversation that we, like, just had. But I think keeping it in that space, I think optimal would be to always eat the best food right in front of you that you prepared yourself from the perfect ingredients out of your refrigerator. Yeah,
0: your farm in the Uh, backyard.
1: And it's all organic. It's all non-GMO. It's all high protein. It's all ethically sourced. It's all seasonal. That's optimal. But we know that that's not practical as practitioners because it's difficult for our clients to adhere to. And so one of the things that I really believe to be a practical approach to nutrition is asking yourself instead of, oh, man, uh, this meal wasn't perfect. Oh, God, it had canola oil or, oh, this isn't organic. Try to win each opportunity you have to fuel your body. Try to win. Just try to get a dub. It doesn't have to be a blowout win. It doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to execute the game plan. Sometimes it's ugly, but can you walk out with a dub? Can you go in and say, hey, yeah, you know what? I did end up at McDonald's. It wasn't the best thing, but I was on my way home at 1 a.m. and I got an egg McMuffin, and that was the lowest calorie, highest protein option on the menu. That's a win. Instead of trying to be perfect, try to win. And the more wins you string together, the better competency and confidence I think people will have around nutrition. So reframing what it is to find wins instead of constantly pursuing perfect and ending up feeling defeated when you end up in real life situations where perfection genuinely isn't reasonable.
0: Yep, I think wide, like widening the goalposts is is a, is a great way like to put it. Just a really, really, really great thing that I want for for all of my clients and all of my listeners is understanding that like those goals and those wins are super contextual and. Some days it's a salad with chicken. Some days it's the egg McMuffin because it's the lowest calorie option. And, and maybe you're just factoring in something that you would really enjoy and you're not going to feel guilty about. So I love that. I think that's super great. Um, all right, Danny, we're going to wrap it up. Let everybody know where they can find you. Drop a whole bunch of things. Plug. Let them hear it.
1: Yeah, you guys can find me on Instagram. My handle is at Danny Matrenga. Um, Everything goes through that. So you can find all my other content there. You can check out the website, which is www.coachdannymatrenga.com. I've got a ton of free guides on there that cover many of the things we talked about today. Um, I've got lots of blogs up there. I've got programs up there. If you want to work with me in the coaching space, that would be how you went about you know, starting the application to do that. You can find my podcast, Dynamic Dialogue, on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, pretty much every major podcasting outlet. Um, and I think I'm on Twitter. I don't know what my handle is, but (laughs) I'm on there too. You're like,
0: but I post a bunch of my tweets to Instagram. So either way,
1: (laughs) yeah, you don't even honestly just follow my Instagram. Most of my appropriate tweets make it up on there. My fantasy football tweets are laced in there too. So, but yeah, that's where you guys can find me, and I'm pretty interactive. I try to, um, I try to stay as engaged with as many people as possible through those platforms. So do toss me a follow and and I'd love to see you guys on, on the social side of things.
0: Awesome, dude. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. I really, really enjoyed our discussion. Me too. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Go give Danny a follow. He's got some of the best content on Instagram and uh, I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram or you can email me jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com or check out the website jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.